Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Hello and welcome to episode 106 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I'm Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, we welcome John Van Dusen from the band The Lonely Forest. John has a solo record out, and I randomly hit him up on Facebook and said, you should be on the podcast. Now, why? You're probably thinking The Lonely Forest is an emo. I had a lunch with Jeff Caudill from Game Face and Norm from Texas of the Reason, and they were both talking about how they miss the shows that they used to have that had all different genres, all different bands, from hardcore to punk to indie, and I think The Lonely Forest would have fit back then in the 90s, uh, and maybe other decades as well, for people that wanted to hear different things during a show. But I love... The Lonely Forest. I think there's some amazing, amazing songs and songwriting, especially by John. And his solo record really hit me as well. So if you want to start with The Lonely Forest, start with the record Arrows, and then go check out um, his new record, which we'll talk about. I also wanted to mention, I was talking about Lincoln Park and Chester Bennington, and I want to tell a quick story. When that album was about to come out I had just moved to New York City and I was 21 and the promo came in and the band name was called Hybrid Theory it wasn't even called Linkin Park yet and they said hey this is a brand new band we signed to Warner Brothers Uh, you need to go see them in Philly and so that's what we did we went and uh, saw them in Philly and they were opening up for a band called the Union Underground and no one gave two shits about Linkin Park. And they were playing all the hits from that first record that you all know, uh, or at least heard on the radio once or twice. And got to hang with them after, and I was wearing a helmet shirt and uh, ended up hanging out with a guitar player, talking about helmet for 30 minutes. But again, ended up working the record for six months and kind of feeling like, wow, this thing is going to be super, super huge. And... It was a fun thing to be a part of as a 21-year-old in the music industry, getting to be a part of a band kind of before they broke and then after. So I followed them. You know, I was following what happened to them throughout the years. And I think a lot of people that uh, got into emo or got into punk 
maybe started with Linkin Park and maybe started with hearing those songs from that first record and that band continued on and they were able to work and put out a bunch of music and it's unfortunate that he passed and it's unfortunate that uh, the band can no longer continue in this form but you'd hope that they continue to make music in other ways so the music is always there for us hopefully uh, you tell a friend that you love them today or yesterday um, and or tomorrow so that was my little story about Chester and Lincoln Park here is episode 106 of the Wash Up Emo podcast with John Van Dusen from the band The Lonely Forest good health and love is what all And of course, it, you know, it's a small place, but when I, gosh, when I got into middle school, we we had this brand new all-ages venue open up here called the Department of Safety, and they brought so many good bands through Anacortes, and um, I mean, I saw TV on the radio, like the day, in Anacortes, this small town, the day before they left on tour with Franz Ferdinand, like that's the caliber of bands we had coming and playing this literally like 170 cap old firehouse. Um, and so I saw a lot of fantastic bands. I saw mostly a lot of bands that were really good, but they were existing in the underground world of music. A lot of bands, um, associated with K records down in Olympia. Um, I mean, we had, you know, Ian McKay's, I forget the name of his project after, um, gosh, after after Fugazi, it was just one of the groups that he was in, but like um, we had him through town. I mean, so many good bands came to Anacortes. But um, at the same time, I was also, you know, right when I was getting to be maybe 13, I began listening to the big rock radio station down in Seattle called 107.7 The End. And at that point in time, the music, the mainstream rock music of the day was, <laughs> it was pretty intense. It was like, everything from disturbed to good Charlotte to Lincoln park to you just, it was kind of a weird era of like big rock, right? It's like 2000, 2001. Exactly. 2000, 2001. That was like right when I started listening to modern rock radio. And so my parents would drive me down to see bands play. Uh, I would go see bigger acts. You know, I went down and saw, um, back when I was listening to kind of that, I don't even know what you, you would know better than I, but the like Finch Thursday type bands, I went and saw bands like that. And then I, I saw anti-flag. I saw, um, rise against, um, I saw like Reliant K. I saw tons of these just kind of, um, how are you finding out about them? Call them? These bands? Yeah. Um, well, the radio state, 1077 in would promote their, they were really active in promoting like local shows when they were bringing through, bringing like, you know, big rock bands through town. Um, so that was one way, um, they had like a concert calendar and I would just say, dad, I want to go see, you know, MXPX and brand new, for example, I saw that show, um, that was heavily promoted by 1077 the end. And, um, so, you know, I'd go to shows because of the radio really, um, and that was basically it. I, that was my only real access to bigger bands coming through town. Um, and it was cool because I, like I said, I had that, that world 
right? See these massive bands, the Deftones, whoever, just massive bands, right? As big as they get. And then five minutes away from my house, I was seeing these um, just incredible, you know, mostly experimental, but just underground, um, you know, indie rock bands, punk bands, um, just weird electronic acts. A lot of really obscure stuff came through in a quarter. So it's cool that I could kind of balance it out. Um, that definitely had a big impact on me. I just remembered the band, uh, the Evens. That was the band after Fugazi. The Evens, yes, I think the Evens play the DOS. I have to, I'll have to double check. We can fact check ourselves, but <laughs> I just remember everybody being so pumped. Um, and at this point, I at that at that point in my life wasn't quite ready for Minor Threat or Fugazi. I am now, but um, I was more interested in more melodic stuff i guess at that point but. when did you when did you uh pick up the guitar um i would have been 10 maybe so yeah i i um i had two sisters older sisters who were classically trained violinists and my parents were musical and i uh decided at a pretty young age that i wanted to i didn't want to play classical music I wanted to play rock and roll and um, it all kind of happened at the same time. But with guitar, I had no real training. I just picked up my dad's acoustic guitar and started playing it wrong. So I wish I could show you, but I can't obviously, but I would, I used my thumb over the top of the neck instead of like under, like up and under the neck yeah, the way yeah, you yeah. would, you know, so I'd hold just my thumb and I'd just play one string at a time. And then eventually I moved to one finger, like, in the proper way, like up and around and then two and then three. And then I was just playing bar chords. And then finally my dad said, you know, look at you guitar lessons. And right at that time, I also started taking drum lessons and failed miserably at it, but I still played lots of drums, but I couldn't handle the uh, like reading of music. And then I took piano lessons at the same time. So piano drums and guitar all kind of crashed into my world right at the same time. I had an electric guitar, I had a piano and a drum set all, you know, readily available. Um, so I was making noise, uh, probably fifth grade was kind of when it all started. And my, my dad actually would come into my room and play guitar and I'd play drums. And that's how I learned, um, kind of the beginning of what it means to play with someone else, you know, because it's, it's, uh, in my opinion, it's really common for people to learn guitar, learn the drums in isolation. You put them in a room with someone else, they don't know what to do. So I'm super thankful because my dad would come in and just literally would just jam with me for hours. So that's so rad. That was pretty cool. Yeah, it is rad. I know. I, it's funny. I guess I don't talk about it enough, but yeah, very, very cool that my dad did that. I mean, and being able to, like I said, being able for you to say, hey, there's this show I want to go to, or hey, I want to play music, and they were open to it, and for you to have that instead of you know having to scrape together your own money and buy it on your own or them telling you to quiet down, but them to, you know, your dad to come in the room and be helpful and again you're totally right because being in a band is having like four different girlfriend boyfriends so you have to learn how to you know you're (laughs) you and then when you look at them like they know what you're thinking or you're able to change things or when you're when you're creating everyone's so vulnerable but you were comfortable because it was your dad no totally yeah it's it's uh it is it's actually interesting as a side note the the drummer from the Lonely Forest, Brady, still a good friend of mine. He teaches drum lessons, and he he is you know next level 
um, when it comes to communicating to younger kids. And that's what he does is he plays guitar and bass with these kids as they play drums. And it's really cool because they, they come out of that season of life with Brayden being able to actually play with others. And most drum teachers, they don't teach that. They just don't. And so as a side note, it's really cool if you can find people that, that will um, foster that type of um, musicianship in someone, the, the ability to collaborate, the ability to improvise, the ability to read another musician and, and not distract or to actually be able to compliment what someone else is doing is really uh, difficult. So. Because a lot of bands, yeah, you, my, see, uh, you know, a lot of bands you see don't have like you can tell it's oh that's four different people on stage playing four different things <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, it's really unusual when you see a band that's on the same page. I mean, it's funny that I'm bringing this up, but earlier I was going on this weird kick at work where I was YouTubing um, like really massive bands and they're trying to find their first ever late night appearances which I find really fascinating. And I found Rage Against, I'm pretty sure it was Rage Against the Machine's first late night appearance. And they were just one of those bands that they played so well together. It was, it's unreal how good they were. Um, but you'll find another band or you'll watch a band today and it just, it feels very disconnected. Like you say, it's like, this doesn't feel, they just don't feel like one unit. They feel, um, well, I don't know. Like you said, they're doing their own thing. <laughs> but that also goes to that heart part where I always, I think, not even if it was together, at least that the, the people were together and you felt it and it wasn't forced. And that's the thing that I mean, I was going to ask you about sort of, you're seeing those underground punk indie rock shows in your hometown and then you're going to Seattle and in the end and there's marketing and there's all these, you know, things happening at these shows that are different. I gravitated I actually never saw those bigger shows. Um, I would, the, mm-hmm. uh, it just I was only seeing punk rock and hardcore stuff. But I gra- when I did see it randomly, I was gravitating more toward that underground part where I was closer. I could feel it. I felt a sense of community more than sort of like someone throwing marketing at me. Um, and that sort of yeah. I don't know shaped how I thought really early. I mean, it makes sense. And that's super cool that you even, I mean, it's just cool that you made this, the distinction between the two. You gravitated towards the, the thing that felt real. Did um, you, did you like, feel that when you were intangible. doing Yeah. Did you feel that when you were going to both? Or was um, it just like, I just wanted to go because it's awesome. <laughs> you know, I, I think it, it, it was feeding in me this desire, like within myself to be a, to be in a rock band. So it didn't matter to me if I was seeing this massive band at Key Arena in Seattle or uh, like a garage band, you know, to me, both were very fascinating. Um, I think looking back, I learned way more from the smaller shows. Um, But at the same time, you know, and I saw a lot of bands I don't like now, like I will openly say, like I saw a ton of, I would consider to be poor um, they're just bad bands, <laughs> but, um, like the bigger ones, especially, I just think I went to some really funny shows, but some of those bands that I still, that I would say, you know, I don't really like them, but they put on, they put on really good shows. And I think that was something I took away from the bigger concerts was that I, I do like a bigger band that can put on a hell of a show. You know, I like it when they, they can play a solid hour and 20 minutes and it's captivating and it's, 
they've clearly put, you know, immense effort into their, their set list and how it flows and all these different things. And so I, you, that, and then, like you said, like kind of the kinetic energy, the raw power of like a, you know, a smaller basement show or something. Yeah. I, I think I loved both of them equally. Um, but the truth is what I was seeing in Accordist most of the time was much more experimental than, um, what I actually think most people got their hands on. I just think the group of people that were booking shows in Accordist were bringing some really strange stuff in. And so that could have been part of it too, that like, um, I definitely saw a lot of stuff when I was 14, 15, 16 that I didn't understand. <laughs> it was just, you know, I kind of left thinking, what did I just see? <laughs> when did you find your voice? When did you, when did you realize that you could sing? Oh man. Um, I think I realized I could sing in middle school, seventh grade. I began singing along, um, you know, with what I was listening to at the time, which would have been a weird mixture of like, you know, modern rock and I guess screamo, if that's what we want to call it. Um, and I remember I had this, this girlfriend at the time, she was my first girlfriend and I was, I had a CD playing in the background while I was talking to her on the phone. And I remember very knowingly like putting the phone down and doing something, but kind of singing out. <laughs> like I kind of wanted her to hear me just to test the waters a little bit. And smooth move. John. Which is really? Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> hey, it worked though. She, she, uh, <laughs> she was very complimentary. You know, John, wow. You, you have a really nice singing voice. And then, um, about that time started hanging out with a couple of friends um, and we started, you know, playing music in the garage and I started actually singing. I remember the first time I ever sang in a band, I was so nervous that I, I have this wireless mic. I had to go inside the house into the bathroom while the band stayed in the garage and played. And I could hear them just enough in the bathroom that I could sing into the wireless mic and they could hear me through the PA in the garage. Holy shit. And I remember nervous. coming back. Yeah, very, very nervous. And I remember coming back in and then kind of high-fiving me and just saying, you know, hey, I think I think you should be the singer of our band. <laughs> and I, that was it. You know, I kind of knew. I was like, okay, I guess I'll, I'll do this. What was that band called? <laughs> we were called Last Man Standing. Oh, and let fantastic. me tell you, we were going to change the world. <laughs> we're going to change the world. <laughs> we, uh, we were really bad. We, uh, we did win the, the talent show in ninth grade, which I was very proud of. Um, my first, my first dose of, you know, that, that like the drug of people applauding and saying, I, I liked your song. I liked your voice. And it definitely began the, me down that road of, you know, kind of pursuing that high. Um, that's a, it really did feel like a drug. I remember, but, yeah, Last Man Standing. We were something else. <laughs> <laughs> Name three bands and what it sounded like. <laughs> um, we were a weird mixture of... Wait a minute. Start again. Like, Don't sell yourself short, John. Don't say a weird mix. Don't say our demo's out soon and then we didn't master it yet. Tell me three bands that it sounded like and be stoked. <laughs> okay, we... Okay, Finch... <laughs> Finch for sure. Okay. We loved Finch. Um, Creed, maybe. 
Um, and oh man, there's just too many. I'm just trying to think of a solid, like, but mediocre, newfound glory. <laughs> we, wow. We, yeah, we were a weird band. We we loved. It was like a pop punk modern rock with some yelling. That sounds perfect. Finch, newfound glory, Creed. Although I'd like to substitute, if I may. Okay. Yes, you may. <laughs> Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam for Creed, because let's just be honest, Pearl Jam's an amazing band, and I'd much rather drop their name than Creed. <laughs> um, Got it. So last not that I want to bash Creed. <laughs> yeah. So so last man standing. A lot of sold out shows. You guys got too big. What what was the next band? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so basically, what happened was, you know, last man standing. We're doing our thing. We start. I remember we got some shows in Seattle. We started playing around the area, and then my bandmates discovered uh, marijuana, of course. <laughs> and they, you know, it was kind of like the skating skater world. And I just remember feeling like I wasn't going to smoke weed. It's like, no, I don't want to smoke weed. I just want to play music. And they, um, they it kind of, they began to kind of miss practices and cancel and, um, which sounds really funny now that I'm saying it out loud, but it's true. And I was like, screw you guys. I'm going solo because of course, that's that's what you do. Yeah. That's totally what you do. <laughs> you know, when you, yeah, that's what you do. And so then I started playing by myself under my own name as John Van Dusen. And, um, actually that's when locally, that's when people really began to pay attention. I released my first EP at the department of safety, this all ages venue. It was sold out. They had, to, they had to actually open the big garage door at the place because there's too many people. And I remember thinking, wow, I think I'm, I'm doing something right. And so, yeah, the jump was from a band to my solo act. Um, and I did that for a couple of years and then met the guys who would be then become um, the Lonely Forest. So, how, how did you meet them? Um, Braden and I met. So Braden, the drummer, him and I were in high school together. We were in a play called Godspell. Um, and it's a musical. It's a really weird play. And Braden was Jesus in the play and I was Judas. And... Um, in fact, I, at the end of the play, I, I tied him to an electric fence and crucified him with an electric guitar solo, if you can believe that. Um, and we, so <laughs> we, we met, uh, you know, doing this play together. And then Braden, you know, just being a fantastic musician, a very good drummer, I thought, you know, would you play with me? And so he actually played on my solo EPs um, before we started playing with Eric and Tony, who were older out of high school um one day basically Braden said you know i'm playing instrumental music with these guys they're out of high school it kind of sounds like smashing pumpkins um sounds like the smashing pumpkins and nirvana is what i think i remember him saying and they he basically said you should come try singing with us and so i did and we actually um i remember coming into this garage it wasn't finished it was really cold and there's Tony and there's Eric. They look super cool. You know, I just remember thinking, wow, these guys are awesome. There was like an empty bottle of wine. And we jammed for two hours. We actually have it recorded on cassette. And it just, it's crazy how quickly that first, you know, practice or whatever you want to call it, how quickly it happened. It, it was unreal. So we, we became a band called Square Wave almost immediately after that. And then... um not too much longer 
um, after changed it to the Lonely Forest. And then how was the, when did you guys, you did, what was the first thing? In 2006 was Regicide, right? Yes. How did you get hooked up with with Jack and Dino? Yeah. (laughs) So basically, oh man, it's confusing. So I was playing solo. Braden was in my solo band and I named my solo band John Van Dusen and the Lonely Forest, right? Ah, So it was like this kind of, this solo band that Tony and Eric were not in. There was two other musicians in the band and we, we signed up for this all ages music competition, 21 and under battle of the bands in Seattle at the experience music project. And, uh, it's called EMP sound off. And we got in, we ended up winning it, which at that point in Seattle and actually just in the Northwest, this was a very high profile battle of the bands, about as high profile as you can get. Um, we got to we got free studio time with our win. We got an in studio on KEXP, wow. which I'm sure you're familiar with. Which is just you know, and at this point I'm 18, um, and on the side, so I'm playing solo, but on the side I'm playing with Tony and Eric and Braden and this other band called Square Wave. So I had two things going on. We win this competition, and I realize um, I need to make a decision. I can't do both, so I decided to play with the guys, and that's when we decided to adopt the name. Um, the Lonely Fourth as our band name. And then we got this free studio time. And I remember Tony was looking at the list of producers that were working at this place called Soundhouse in Seattle. And it's an amazing place. It's where Sunny Day Real Estate recorded LP2. I mean, it has all this amazing history. And um, Jack and Dino's name is on the list. And Tony freaks out because he's, you know, an avid Nirvana fan had been since he was like 10 years old. And of course, you know, Jack and Dino, he's the like the godfather of grunge. He produced all these amazing, amazing, amazing records. And Tony just called him. I remember it was just like, I I don't think there's any way in hell we we can work with Jack and Dino, but I'm going to call him and ask. Tony calls, Jack and Dino says, yes, of course, that sounds great. And so we ended up in the studio with Jack and Dino and it took like three days or less maybe even. And then we have this, you know, this EP called Regicide. And um, that was it. it. It happened very quickly. That's amazing. Yeah. The, it, it seems like the, you know, the things are happening for a reason and is everything, you know, were your were your parents like you got to go to college or you got to do this or were they supportive of all this? Oh, no. Um actually all of us had very supportive parents. Um my parents, I mean, I can't and we could talk an entire hour on how supportive my parents were. Um you know, my dad was the first one to record my demos. He was driving me to shows. He would go to the shows. You know, he would go to the MXPX show, and he had a Swing and Utters t-shirt on. Like, that's how, like, devoted my dad was. And, um, you know, um, even when I was in high school, my guidance counselor at Anacortes High School told me, he said, there's nothing for you here. I think start touring and doing your thing. I think that's what you're supposed to do. Literally my guidance counselor told me that. And my parents were 100% in favor of it. I didn't go to school my senior year and the lonely forest started touring when I was 18. You didn't, you didn't finish high school. No, I mean, so basically what I did, there's a program in Washington state called running start. It allows you to transfer to a community college and accumulate enough credits to actually get your high school diploma. Oh, wow. Um, so I transferred to a community college and took, you know, like philosophy, intro to philosophy and like current world problems, 
uh, online. And Lonely Forest started touring down the West Coast. I remember doing my finals like in a Value Village parking lot. That's amazing. Um, it was amazing. Honestly, I felt like a rock star. We were no- nothing near rock stars, but I felt like one because my friends are, you know, at home in biology and I am in Santa Barbara, like smoking a joint on the beach <laughs> and like doing my, you know, doing my homework online. And it, it was incredible. But the cool thing was that my parents were so supportive. And um, I mean, to this day remain two of my, you know, biggest supporters, but they, they were all, they were all in. They were, and they've always been all in. It's been pretty incredible. What's interesting, I think, even about two thousand six, two thousand seven, is yes, we've got the internet starting to warm up, and there's things like MySpace and all those places that were things to do. It's obviously not as fast as it now, but you know, you've you had a, a couple releases before you kind of had that breakout, and I think it somehow kept you guys, I don't know, it seemed like you were seasoned before something happened. Um, and I don't know, sometimes I feel like sometimes that doesn't happen or there isn't that patience for it. I have very little patience now because of how quick everything is. Like, I'm mad when Amazon can't get me something in an hour. Like, that's just, you know, right. instead of waiting and sending in the, you know, the check and wait, like that kind of thing. So did you guys feel that you were you had these little milestones that you were hitting that you were, you know, touring the West coast or releasing an EP, but it didn't feel, did you feel like there was pressure? Um, no, it didn't feel, I didn't feel any pressure. Um, you know, a lot of cool things happened, but we definitely put on a lot of, in a lot of hours, a lot of work. You know, we were the band that practiced multiple times a week, like four times a week. And, um, we, we were playing a ton of shows, paying our dues, paying, playing so many all ages shows. And so I think when things began to happen, it felt natural. It didn't feel out of our reach. It didn't feel uncomfortably quick. Um, and you know, what happened was we recorded regicide EP with Jack and Dino. You know, we start playing higher profile shows you know, we played with Maritime and a lot of really cool bands that we liked. And then, um, and then our guitar player, Tony, we didn't know this at the time, but he got really, really sick. Um, like near death experience sick. And he, he ended up leaving the band and he didn't really tell us why. Um, and that's a, that's a complicated story, but he just, he needed to take time. So we became this three piece and that kind of set us back a little bit. It kind of felt like a, um, like we've been, they had the wind knocked out of us. And I remember I had been, um, feeling like the momentum was good, feeling like it was great. And then, you know, suddenly we lose a member. And I remember we, we were remodeling our practice space and we didn't have anywhere to play. And we wanted to write this new record. I had all these songs and there was a church down the street that let us like move in and rehearse in the, at like night. It was the weirdest thing. And we get into this church and it's the only reason we can go in there is because Braden, Braden's parents went to the church and, you know, here we are, we're stoners. We're just doing our thing in this church. And we wrote this record, our whole full length, like it just came together really quickly. Um, Which one was a that? lot of the songs did. And it's called nuclear winter. Oh yeah. That came and, oh. Um, and it, it's a, such a weird record because it's overly long. It's a concept record about the end of the world 
Um, it's very depressing and there's no guitars. It's only keyboards, bass and drums. And that kind of put us in our awkward phase. That's what I like to call it. Um, but we started playing a ton around Seattle and starting to get attention, but we were playing with these really heavy loud bands. And I remember like we played this metal festival called edge fest. I don't even know why. And uh, <laughs> we got booed before we started because I had a keyboard. Wow. And it was just this really weird time. And we were heavy. Like we were very loud, very heavy, you know, Braden hit so hard. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't like we were just losing fans, but, um, it was definitely, definitely an awkward phase for us. Um, very hazy. Like all I did was smoke weed and walk in the woods and write these songs. That was literally my life after Tony left the band. And then, um, then, um, picked up the guitar again. And that's when I wrote We Sing in Time, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with if you're a Lonely Force fan. And, um, we started recording this follow-up to it that was all guitar-driven, like noisy, you know, just kind of anthemic, energetic pop music, essentially, is what I'd call it. And that's definitely when things began to pick up pace for us. And, uh, yeah, bringing the guitar, <laughs> bringing the guitar back was a good move. <laughs> and then from... so what... I feel like I just said a lot. <laughs> That's perfect. That's what I want. Uh, the, a lot of words. The, I love it. We sing the body electric. Uh, that you know definitely had we sing in time. What 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 things happened? Was it like a tour? Did you pass the Did you pass the Mississippi? Or were you you know what kind of milestones happened then that you felt like okay, there's some momentum? Um, and was Tony back in the band at this point, or was he still out? So Tony was still um, doing his own thing. We wrote and recorded We Sing the Body Electric. Uh, part of what happened, honestly, was I think we figured out w- what we wanted to be. We were a loud um, but catchy rock band, and we really were loud. Like, we'd play shows, and I think we made a real racket. It was just, it was loud. And I, um, we kind of stepped up into the sincerity of the moment. Like, didn't want to shy away from the emotional stuff honestly. And if you read the lyrics of that record, it's, it's, um, it's very emotional, very private, very personal. Sometimes I can't even believe that I published some of those lyrics and nuclear winter. The, the, the prior record was, um, you know, it's, it's about a character and I'm removed from it. It's about the end of the world. It was, it was more about me getting high and thinking about like, actually been, had been reading my philosophy textbooks and, um, you know, the current event stuff. And so kind of going, shifting from like this big perspective to a very personal, my life sucks, but there's hope in the world perspective. It just started translating with the all ages crowds in our area a lot better. And what started happening was uh, the kids started really coming to our shows. It was like, we were getting a better draw. We made this little, uh, like sampler with four songs off of the record before it was mixed. And, we handmade a thousand of them and they went really quickly. And, um, yeah. And, and at that point we weren't touring anymore. It was just local and it was just us playing these, like every show we could get essentially. And, um, we released, we sing the body electric on this local label called burning building records. And, um, that's when, that's just when Seattle, I think really kind of turned 
and noticed us for the first time for real. Like this is a real band. They aren't just, you know, this novelty band that won this, you know, all ages competition. They are a real band. And, and um, there was a couple of things that happened. I mean, one was that Chris Walla, Death Cab for Cutie, obviously in an interview on like CNN or something, CNN.com name dropped us. He said, they asked him what he was listening to and he named, you know, we sing the body electric. He said, that's what I'm listening to. And that was a big deal for us in Seattle because obviously he carries immense weight. You know, a lot of people respect him immensely. Um, and then we, we got, uh, we released our record and it was sold out at the show. And then we played bumper shoot, which is a big festival in downtown Seattle. And that show was sold out. And I think those kind of three things really, it, it just, that's kind of when it began to happen. Um, and I actually, I would say is when it began to go uncomfortably fast for me, almost like I was watching Dunkirk. Like I felt last night in the movie theater, just like gripping the sides of my seat thinking like, this is going quicker than I thought it would kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, you've got Chris Wallace saying he's like, you know, loving your record. You're playing this big festival, uh, you know, local show and it's, yeah, I'm sure you are gripping your gripping your seat being like what is this email who just called me uh you know all these things are sort of happening when it was in this little community where it wasn't just you guys playing the show and going home there's all these other things you had to do totally yeah no it was it was a new world for sure and then you did the you did an ep with chris correct yeah so basically what happened was um you know, we sing the body electric, got a lot of local feedback. And then we found out after the release that there were major labels that had been listening to it. And then basically we got a manager and an amazing, like an amazing manager and amazing booking agent. It all happened once we actually, uh, were opening for Jeremy Enoch of sunny day real estate in Seattle. And they, these manager and the booking agent came to the show and they all, they, both kind of signed on at the same time, which was fantastic. It was a massive deal for us. And um, suddenly we have these labels flying out to see us play, you know, like Columbia and RCA and Atlantic and all these people are like, Hey, the lonely forest. And um, we learned that Chris Walla was wanting to start his own label and um, that Atlantic records had signed on to kind of be the, um, the partner in it. So it would be a, an imprint of Atlantic. And so we obviously signed with him and his label. And so then immediately went into the studio with him and, um, the EP itself was really, um, it was like one song that we had recorded at a previous session with him. And then a couple off of which would, uh, a couple that would be on arrows, you know, a little bit later. And then, you know, a song that we recorded in his living room in Portland essentially was that's what the EP was. Um, but at that point we had already spent the time in at sound city in LA to record arrows with Chris Walla. So that experience had already happened when we released the EP, which I don't know if you've, I don't, are you familiar with sound city down in LA? Yeah. Yeah. That kind of blew our minds a bit. You know, here we are recording our, our follow-up to Weasing the Body Electric with somebody we deeply respect in the same studio where, you know, Nevermind was recorded and Rumors and Damn the Torpedoes and, you know, just the list goes on. We definitely were losing our minds. We didn't, we didn't know what was happening. (laughs) 
Now, with working with Chris, what was different? Did he challenge you? Did he because you, you, if you listen to the photography, you know how much of it was done when you got there, or was Chris being like, "You got to add that little hook," and I don't want to live there here. Like how much? How much was he involved in 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 that part or any? Chris was immensely involved. He he was very involved. He flew up to Anacortes. Um, I guess he drove up to Anacortes, I should say, from Portland. And um, he came to our practice space, you know, that same one we've been practicing in since that first practice where, where Braden invited me over. And we we ran through all these songs that we had. And he was very helpful. Um, because I think my my composition was a little bit more sporadic at that point. If you listen to We Sing the Body Electric, it's it's very it's kind of all over the place at times. And so Chris really kind of brought it in a little bit closer, um, cleaned it up a little bit and, you know, helped with that. And then, um, you know, he was very invested, super invested. And I, I, I will admit that I, I write a lot of songs. I am a, a prolific songwriter. I write all the time. And so I had tons and tons and tons of demos, demos for days. And he, he spent time with these demos. These are my garage band demos as in like the program garage band. They're recorded poorly, but he spent all this time with them. And, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the first track on Arrows. It's called be everything. Yes. But, um, he heard that. And my demos I sent him came in alphabetical, uh, order on accident and be everything was at the top of the list. And so that was a demo he listened to first. And, I, that was a song that was super private, very personal. I don't. I remember thinking later, like, why did I even include that in these, this batch of demos? And he, for whatever reason, the song just hit him really hard. And he, like, he battled us for it. He was like, that song has to be first. It has to be on the record. And, you know, now I'm very thankful that he did that. But in the, in the moment, I remember thinking, I wrote Go Outside as an intro to this record. It has to be the first record. So that's how invested Chris was. Like, he he went to bat for songs. Like he said, you know, this has to be on the record. And, um, I mean, the guy's a genius. He, he definitely, um, added a lot of really amazing stuff to arrows specifically. Um, but it was a, it was a wake up call for me because the previous two records were super indulgent on my half. Like, um, I spent nine months recording me singing body electric and I'd go in on weekends and I would get super high and I would just do whatever I wanted. That was how we recorded. Um, and our friend, Sam Winston, who recorded the record, he would edit me every once in a while, but really it was just up to me. And so to go from that to, you know, sound city with Chris Walla, where I have somebody who I, you know, respect telling me no a lot, that was hard on me. It definitely was. And it, it, I wish I had been, um, I wish I had more humility at the time. Like I look back and think shit, like I should have been more humble. Um, and I wasn't, but you know, I could, I learned from it. So, I mean, some of those songs, I mean, definitely the, you know, hearing that record, I forget who sent it to me or someone had said, Tom, you got to hear this. This is up your alley. Um, you know, definitely turn off this song and go outside. Um, for that one specifically, like that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I just like, I was like, Holy fuck, this song is awesome. The video is awesome. You know, the, 
you know, the ending to it? Like, what, did that song come sort of complete, or was that one that Walla was like, do this or do that? And was there a battle for that one, or was it kind of done? Um, as far as the like lyrics and melody, and like I wrote that alone on the guitar. I remember I was sitting in a, my grandpa's old like retirement home in Atlanta, so like I completed it brought it to the band, the band started playing it, but Wallace, Wallace contributions to go outside were more nuanced. Um, but they had a big impact. I remember he, he had some like really good input to the drum, like the rhythm of it. And like the way, like where some of the lyrics were landing. Um, but they made, they were, they were changes that had a big impact. So, um, but really, you know, we had been playing that song at shows before Wallace signed on. So it was already a song that we were like playing live, but he definitely brought um, brought wisdom into it <laughs> and yeah. changed it for the better. One of my other favorite songs on the record is Coyote. Yeah. Can you talk about that, like song? that song? I can. It's, um, you know, I recorded that in my parents' basement during the like nuclear winter era. And we sing about the electric era, probably. I can't quite remember, but I would, I wasn't sleeping very well, had a lot of sleeping issues, sleep issues. And, um, basically what I do is I would wake up and I'd get stoned and my, my creative brain would just kind of go crazy. I couldn't, I couldn't sleep because my, my mind wouldn't let me sleep. And so what I would do is I'd just go in and I'd make noise. I'd write, um, in the basement and my parents um, house where I grew up. It's right next to the woods and the swamp. Um, and so coyotes, I mean, you hear them all the time. Um, you hear, you hear frogs and coyotes, the two two sounds you hear. And, um, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the sound of coyotes, but they're, they're very, they can be very, um, terrifying. Like the sounds that they make, if they've killed something, they just, there's something about their sound that's that is very off-putting to me and kind of gives me the, the creeps. And I just remember being very high, um, not sober at all. And at that point in my life, um, I was dating my now wife and, um, I was repeatedly making terrible decisions like all the time. And I think she had gone on a trip to North Carolina back to see, um, some extended family. And I just remember being so depressed that she was gone and the coyotes were howling and, making their sounds. And I just felt like they were judging me and I don't like, not like almost like they, I know this sounds weird cause I was very high, but just, I felt like they were, their sounds were directed at me and how terrible I was. <laughs> so I, you know, I demoed that song and, and it came out really well. I really loved it. And then, um, obviously it got chosen for arrows and, um, the rest is history. I mean, we, it's a, the demo I recorded isn't that much different from um, the final Lonely Forest version. Oh, rad. That's a really cool story. I mean, it was, I don't want to live there. Is that also high? <laughs> that was when you're high. <laughs> live there was sober, actually. Live right. there. I'm just playing. I'm just I remember joking. I was, yeah, well, a lot of it was high, but yeah, live there was sober. I remember <laughs> sitting in my parents, my parents' living room writing about it, and I had, Recently, I'd, my second EP as a solo artist, I'd recorded in Nashville and I'd gone back a couple of times and just felt like it was a really sterile, clean, like, you know, artistic environment. And it was really off-putting and then had been to LA and 
felt like LA was all about the money really. And that's kind of how that song came together. So, yeah. The other thing I like about arrows and I want to talk about sort of what happened from it. Cause I feel like this was sort of a big time for you were the videos and I, you, you know, Pacific Northwest, pretty similar to the Northeast in, you know, at least green. And I just, I, it was funny. I could almost like feel the like, uh, dampness when I was watching the videos, <laughs> like, cause there, a lot of them are in, yeah. the, in, in the forest. So, which was really cool. And I, it was something that I really liked. I didn't, I didn't know if that was something that you had wanted to, or that was just out the back door. And that's where we shot the video. <laughs> Uh, that is that is exactly it. Um, both of <laughs> we sing in time and go outside. Videos were shot in Anacortes. Um, it's a wet place. Um, we get less rain than Seattle, but it is a wet place. And um, I just think the aesthetic here, the um, the cultural aesthetics, the uh, the environment, you know, the the scenery, it all just made its way into everything we did. We couldn't escape it. So um, I'm glad it felt, um, you know that way it felt rainy and gloomy because that's where we live yeah definitely the northeast where i was definitely was very cloudy and kind of felt the same so i definitely liked that and then in that, that time was obviously Wait, where oh sorry well i was gonna ask you where are you at in the northeast I, I i live in new york city but i grew up in vermont oh cool man i've sorry this is a total side note but because anacortes in the pacific northwest is getting so expensive i will like occasionally do like Zillow, Zillow time, Zillow hour, where I'll just like look at places I want to live and Vermont's always up there, man. I love, I I love the idea of living in Vermont. (laughs) It's very similar to the Pacific Northwest. It, it, the, because I don't know, I I don't know if it's the, I think it's the latitude of just, it's, it's, it's rainy. That's, you know, it's obviously cold. Um, but there's like, I don't know. I feel like (laughs) there's like a bunch of crunchies, uh, like recycling's cool. Like, <laughs> like I, you know, there's no billboards, uh, in Vermont. So you, I thought that's nice. Yeah. There's no billboards there. Like, and then the aesthetic of towns, there's these laws that like, if a McDonald's comes in a, that would be crazy in itself, but, uh, they would have to make the sign like wooden, you know, and like, not like the crazy neon yellow, but like a subdued yellow. Right. Um, and I kind of like, I, awesome. I thought that was everywhere when I like left, <laughs> like I was so naive <laughs> where I was like, Oh yeah, man, everything's, no, yeah. So definitely what, what towns were you looking in? Um, mostly when I, when I do my, my dream, my, my Zillow time, <laughs> I was, I was looking in the wilderness. Um, I was looking at the like weird log cabins with like five acres that somehow only cost like a hundred thousand dollars. Um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, obviously Burlington, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I've Vermont is actually one of the few States I haven't been to. I think there's like four or five I haven't been to. And it's in my mind is this magical place that I have to visit. You do. Well, it's crazy. So now that you say that you've never visited, that was how I was growing up. Like so few bands played there. So it was, it was so hard to like, like the punk rock hardcore and like, you know, screamo emo kind of stuff like came through because there was a punk rock club, but the like giant shows, I never was exposed to any of that growing up. I didn't, I like, it was just on TV. Um, Right. So it was, it was kind of so like, you mean, 
So you're saying you didn't see Disturbed in eighth grade with your dad when there were strippers on stage? No, I did not. No, the biggest oh, okay. pro- the biggest thing before I graduated was probably, I mean, Warp Tour and no, that was no, that was that was that was after no in co- in high school I went to um, Montreal to see Rage Against the Machine. Whoa, that's cool. In '96, and that was that was insane. That's awesome. That was probably top five show of all time, all time. Um, I believe that. That's yeah. They literally came they, out and just started playing Bulls on Parade. It was '97, maybe. 90, I don't fucking remember, but it was just like, oh shit, it's on. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> uh, but I think. Sorry, for, I definitely took us in a new direction. I don't know what you're going to ask. <laughs> it's fine. No, dude. If you ever, if you ever do make yourself up there, I will uh, go up there and give you the grand tour. Um, Awesome. I had a, I had a uh, a friend I brought up there, and there's the Ben and Jerry's factory that you have to go. It's like sort of like the one tourist attraction. And my friend right. from college was like really <laughs> skeptical because I kept telling him it's a super small spa- place. Like, you know, there's more cows than people. Like, it's just kind of like a small place. He's like, whatever, man. Like, it's 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 a state. It's big. I go, I'm telling you, man. I'm gonna run into people I know. And he's like, whatever. So we're on the tour. And who giving who gives our tour? Like, there's hundreds of people there. Um, my old guidance counselor, and so they like <laughs> she walks in the room, and I didn't tell him. Like, I knew who it was, and I knew, and so she's like, "Oh, where's everybody from?" I'm like, "Oh, Washington, blah blah blah." And then she's like, "Hi, Tom," <laughs> in front of like all these people on the tour, and he just looks at me. He's like, "You're ridiculous." And I was like, "I told you." That's awesome. <laughs> That's really awesome. Nerds. Yeah. Um. To the Lonely Forest, that moment had to have been crazy because you were getting, you talked about the labels, you talked about, you know, you released this record and a lot of shit happened. I mean, I feel like you guys were on tour for like two years. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, I enjoyed it. I I loved it. I I liked doing interviews. I liked doing the weird, you know, acoustic radio stuff. Um, (laughs) I I enjoyed it. Um, The parts that I didn't enjoy were more personal. It the, the my, it really it was weird because everything external in my life at that point was going very well, right? So I just I loved you know touring with cool bands and doing all that stuff, but internally I was not okay, um, and that you know it, it had an impact on the band um, and that I was in turmoil within myself, and so I think um, there definitely was a attention at that time for that very reason that like everything we'd worked so hard um, at was, was really beginning to bear fruit. And it felt like, you know, it really felt like, like, wait, we can do this for the rest of our lives. Like if we just keep doing what we're doing, we've got it. But inside, I think there was this dread because I was thinking, I can't do this for the rest of my lives. I don't feel healthy. I don't feel sane. You know, um, at that point I was, I'd recently been married and we got married. I left on, two or like days later, a couple days later. And, um, you know, it, it was a weird tension for sure. Um, and then, and then what happened was after arrows, you know, we, we were still on, um, uh, trans Atlantic, but then Atlantic got purchased by some Russian, you know, billionaire. And actually I want to say, I think it was Warner that got purchased. And then, you know, Atlantic's owned by Warner. Anyways, all this crazy stuff happened with our label which then led to the weird limbo period where we were like submitting like a hundred demos to Atlantic and trying to like figure out how we're going to keep going. And 
I think the combination of the weird, like label stuff, the industry stuff that we were not prepared for, you know, you've got these four guys that are basically a garage band from intercourse, Washington. Like we're not ready for that stuff. Mix that with the fact that within myself, I'm in turmoil. It definitely kind of, um, it felt like the beginning of the end, um, whether I could put my finger on it at the time or not, like looking back, it felt like the beginning of the end, which is, you know, sucks to say, but I think that's what it was. So, and then adding up to wasted hours, that was, that wasn't on the sub label, right? That was something that was out el- that was elsewhere. Yeah. So adding up to wasted hours, um, you know, kind of came out of that weird time, um, with the labels and the, the title of the record is, you know, referring to being away from my wife, um, on tour. And then the double meaning being like all the time we spent in negotiations and all the time we spent just doing industry stuff that didn't really matter. Um, but yeah, we, we were basically what happened was Atlantic dropped trans records. And so we had to renegotiate with trans as an actual independent label. And then this woman named Alexandra Pat Savis purchased adding up the wasted hours for universal Republic. Um, and cause she had a little record label called chop shop and she's a very powerful woman in the industry. Um, so it seemed like a really good idea at the time. And then, um, everything kind of like, it was the weirdest thing. We don't need to go into it too deeply, but it really just felt like all the momentum we had going just kind of came to a screeching halt. And that record, adding up the wasted hours really wasn't even released properly. Um, it was like on iTunes, it's like, Oh, there it is. It's, it's out. <laughs> I'll be honest. I didn't um, know it came out and I was a fan. Yeah, no, it was <laughs> as far as like releases go and a follow up, especially to an air record like arrows. Um, it was a, it was a flop. Like the way it was released, um, everything, it just was done poorly. Um, and you know, we had an amazing management team and all these people around us and they were all kind of hitting their heads against the wall saying like, why isn't this working? And unfortunately the label situation was, um, it was just really uninspired and unhealthy in it. So it just kind of led to this weird, like, yeah, like I said, like it's out and nobody knew it was out. <laughs> and then Which, and then that took you know, the wind out of your sails. No, definitely. That that and lots of other things, lots of personal things um that we don't need to get into if you don't want. <laughs> but just it just really um it all kind of came together and um it kind of felt like we were putting a headlock. And I just remember kind of waking up and and realizing like this isn't this doesn't feel good anymore. And um actually before before we even recorded adding up the wasted hours i had, when we negotiated with universal republic i negotiated with the help of a lawyer um the ability to record a solo record and that's when i recorded the universal side which as you know just came out like yep. a couple like a month and a half ago so like i actually recorded the universal side like while the only force was still a band um just because I wanted to, I had all these extra songs. I thought I should record this. Um, so it's kind of a crazy story. That's nuts. So you kind of had the foresight that this wasn't going to be, this was going to end soon. Well, you know, honestly, I don't think I, that's how I felt at the time. It was more, 
because I had so many songs and so many demos that there was, there was just no possible way for us to record and release them all. I felt like I, being a songwriter, I was like, I want to record these songs. I really want to, um, I have to do it for myself. Um, but I will say that like, I think somewhere, you know, deep within the cave that is me, I think I knew that it was coming to an end, but I wasn't willing to admit it. Um, as in the lonely forest. And eventually what really led to me, it was a, I was like a, a weird combo of like, my marriage isn't working. Something needs to change. You know, my life was changing completely. Like as a spiritual person, I was changing. Like a lot of things were happening within myself. I was like, I'm just not the same person anymore. I don't want my marriage to fail. And that kind of woke me up. And I realized like, I just, something has to change. And the lonely forest had been the defining thing in my life for a decade at that point, basically. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but sometimes these, um, you know, amazing, beautiful, big things, they just have to die in order for life to go on. And, um, I just kind of reached that decision and that was it. And it's crazy. You know, if you, the last line on the last only force record is, um, I just wanted to say what a beautiful way to waste our, to waste our time. And, um, it feels strangely prophetic now. I don't, I don't think we wasted our time, but, um, yeah, what a dreary way to, to end as a band. <laughs> yeah. But so from that and, you know, releasing universal sigh, you'd already kind of recorded the songs, but what, what, what happened after what things did, were you doing to kind of reset yourself and put yourself out there again? Cause I was really excited when I heard about that this was coming out. Cause I had thought you were, you guys were done. Like, I didn't know if you were ever going to make music again. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't know either. I knew, I mean, I love to write songs. I love to make records. Like I love making records, long records with 12, 13 songs, right? That's my jam. I love it. Um, and when the Lonely Forest finished, my wife and I, we, the next day, basically two days later after our last show, we flew to Germany and we were gone out of the country for seven months. And then eventually came back to Anacortes, got a normal job. And it was just kind of like, okay, I still want to make music, but I, I want to do it in a healthy way because I think things of the Lonely Forest just felt like they got out of control. And, um, you know, now I want people to hear my music. I do. And who knows what doors open, but really for me, it's about doing what I love and what I love is releasing records. And if I can, like, for example, my next record, like I'm just going to put it on, I'm just going to put it on Bandcamp. And that's going to be it. And I'm okay with that because it still allows people to share in it and experience it. And so it's hard for me to say that I want to put myself out there. I mean, I am, but I don't really have, you know, I don't have the money or I don't have the, the label help. I don't have people like really pushing me. Um, but I do think it's better that way right now because it's a natural thing. It's, it's almost like I'm back to, you know, 2006 again. It's like, okay, I'll just do what I do. And if doors open naturally, then they do. And I don't know if this makes sense, but it sometimes, you know, it feels like people are, there's an urgency about the way they release music because they want it so badly. They want people to hear them and affirm it so badly. And it just makes me uncomfortable because it reminds me of myself, you know, seven or eight years ago. And 
I'm not that way anymore. You know, I feel like I could release bedroom records for the next 20 years and I'd be okay. <laughs> um, but frankly, Tom, I'm really glad you heard my record. Like, I don't even know how, but I'm glad you heard it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a fan of you. So I'm going to, fo- I am not a fan of a song or an album. I'm a fan of a band. And if I really love someone, I'm going to, you know, seek out what they're doing. And I think your voice there's something to it that clicks with me. I'm always the first. If someone sends me a record and I get 10 to 15, 20 emails a day from bands, which is awesome and I love listening to them, but you got to have the, 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 the voice. And there's a way that you articulate and the way that you have some of the, the lines go that really connect. And I think from the, this solo record that you did, the Universal Sigh, um, I think there's some beautiful things in it that you were able to sort of express that you couldn't do in the Lonely Forest. Yeah, thank you. Wow, that means a lot to hear you say that. I I would agree. Um, like I actually but went it's really through, cool to hear you say that. I went to a few songs, and I I want to see if you can uh, if you will. I want to go through the record, and I want you to tell me if I'm right or not. Okay. Okay. So yeah, that sounds great. I'm actually. Just so you know, I'm putting on a jacket and getting in a car, but I'm I'm still with you. Okay, perfect. <laughs> well, I, I would say maybe like ten more minutes, pot tops. Perfect. No, I'm, I mean I'm greatly enjoying I'm enjoying this. It's just that I'm going to a barbecue with my wife. She says I'm getting the we need to go face. So <laughs> <laughs> apologize for me. She gave me a look. <laughs> Tell her we're promoting the record. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we're promoting the record. He says. <laughs> She says that's great. That's great. Get in the car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So she says I love that shit. <laughs> in my head, that has a very Death Cab for Cutie chorus. True or not? Ah. In my head. Yeah, I'd say I could see that. I think it. It's a little redundant for Ben Gibbard. Like I, I feel like he's not that redundant with his lyrics. He's. He's a more clever man than I am. But yeah, I could see that. And then The Bigger End, that's the most Lonely Forest song to me on the record. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's actually why I released the single first um, because it felt, I felt like I wanted to share something that was somewhat familiar um, with people who liked the band. So yeah, I would agree. And then Masterworks, the bass line reminds me of Muse. Oh, I can see that, like a synth bass. Yeah. Kind of like a fat synth bass. Yeah, yeah just droning, that. just droning along. Uh, what else? Um, you know, from else. I mean, Mass, Mass Affection, that one also has a little Death Cab for Cutie in there. I didn't know if you were, like, deep into Walla Land when you were listening to those couple songs, but I could kind of hear it. Gosh, I don't know what I was into at that point. <laughs> Mass Affection, I mean, that's... That's basically me trying to make. That's that's me being indulgent. Actually, Mass Effect is a good example on the, the, the newest record of me being indulgent. Like, I want to make, you know, a kind of a strange pop song that only has three chords, literally, where I sing about playing Mass Effect and not leaving my house. That's that's what that, that song. Is. I like that. And then Absentee Heartbeat. Absentee Heartbeat. I know I watched an interview of you talking about that song, and without getting into it, yeah. everybody go. I will link to this when we post it, but go and watch the interview that you do about this song. Uh, it's beautifully done and um, played and uh, worth the five minutes. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, it's, 
that's by far my favorite song on the record. So I appreciate you promoting it. And then um, for this record, you released it. Are you gonna? Is there more touring? What's sort of the? Or are you just kind of being like, I'm gonna just release music, and this is just what's out right now. Yeah, um, I mean it's a little of that, but uh, I'll be releasing two music videos soon for it. One for uh, Don't Pitch Correct Me, and one for Mind Reader. Um, I I just signed to a record label in Germany called Devil Duck Records, and they'll be releasing it on vinyl in late August. And um, so I'll be going over there to play some shows, and then I'll go, be going back um, early next year for a second European tour where I'm just just playing the Universal Sigh and promoting it. Um, so there's still some life left in it. Um, but it, it, at this point, is, it has accomplished what I hoped it would accomplish, which essentially is letting people know, those who care, I'm here, I'm still making music, there's a lot more music coming. Um, and I thought, in my case, it was fun to start with something so um, straightforward and pop-centric, because the music I'm making now is much, much less that way. It's, it's definitely getting, um, it's going in a, in a slightly weirder direction and I'm, I'm really excited about that. So, um, yeah, I, I don't really know how to quantifiably, you know, just, I can't decide how, how much time it has left, but, um, I do think I want to release it on vinyl in the States. So that's something. <laughs> and, um, if, if, I'm hoping to tour the States as well. And obviously we'll be playing songs off of this record wherever I play. So um, I'm kind of fingers crossed, hoping to find a booking agent or hoping to find some bands when I take me on tour. Well, it sounds positive. It sounds, it sounds happy. It sounds like you've got a good space where you're living life. You've got music playing. You've got, uh, you know, some work to keep you off of it. And it seems like, that seems to be a good routine yeah i'd say so thank you for saying that i i um i do feel i do feel like things are changing and i can't figure out how but i do feel like my my little life that i've had for the last two years here in anacortis is about to change well cool well thanks thanks for doing this yeah are you kidding thank you i really appreciate it i um yeah, I'm just, I don't know. It's nice. It's nice to have a good conversation. So thank you for being a good conversationalist. Can you name the provinces uh, west to east in order? No. Gosh. <laughs> Did you know that uh, I, tried. The, I, I had a class in school where, because we were so close to Canada, we actually had a Canada class. I actually, that's what the only thing I remember. Wow, can you do it for me? Yeah. So th- there's a way to do it. It's 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 Basmo Q, three N's and a P. That's how you re- that's how you remember it. Wow. <laughs> that's so intense. So British Columbia. So I'm waiting. I'm Al- ready. I'm Alberta. Ready. Okay. Saskatchewan. Right. Manitoba. Yes. Ontario. Okay. Quebec. Uh, Newfoundland. Nova Scotia. Uh, Northwest, isn't the Northwest Territories, and then uh, Prince Edward Island. Wow, <laughs> super impressive. 
But see, I feel like there's a lot of Canadians that can't do that. I know. But the thing is, that's the only thing I remember. Okay. Other than, mm. you know, other than like Montreal Expos trivia. Like that's literally it. <laughs> you know, I I give my wife a hard time about it, but it's not that Canadian history isn't interesting. It is. It totally is. If you get down to the details, there is a lot of fascinating stuff about Canada. But I would argue that if you compare it or contrast it to American history, it is not quite as interesting. And so, um, you know, it's easy to forget all that, all that, uh, you know, the rich history of Canada. Um, I don't know if my wife's in your shots. I think she went into the TV room and is now playing Zelda. So luckily, I she can't hear me make fun of her nation. Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening and for this current episode you're about to hear. I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also reprinted Volume 1, so you can order both. Check out the DIY publishing at anthologyofemo.com.